You're listening to Warsaw Evangelical Presbyterian Church's podcast. We'd love to worship with you today. Today's message comes from Senior Pastor Aaron Klein. I want to begin by saying I can remember when we had lived in Florida and we had a friend of ours who we had known from Pennsylvania who had come and had visited us. She was a church planter friend and her mom ironically was a part of our church in Florida. So whenever she would come and visit her mom, she would come and see us. Well, at one particular occasion, we were in our house one evening and we were talking together, catching up uh, about how things had been going in the church planting world. Uh, And then we spent some time praying together. When we had finished praying, we opened our eyes and she said, I see two angels standing in front of your door. She said one is probably seven or so feet tall and the other one is maybe five and a half feet tall, a little bit shorter. She went on to describe them in great detail. And of course, Nicole and I had probably eyes wide open. We looked at the door hoping that we too would be able to get a glimpse of what she had seen. Unfortunately, we said that we couldn't see this angel, and she said they're standing there to protect you and to protect your house. Of course, there's a part of us that our minds are oscillating back and forth between this idea that, well, maybe she's just crazy, right? And uh, she's just seeing things that obviously we can't see, so they're not real. Two, this other side that maybe this is more like Balaam or perhaps more like the emperor's new clothes as well, thinking maybe she can see something that if only we were smart enough or if only we had the faith enough to see, we would be able to see. Of course, I certainly don't doubt uh, what she had said that she had seen. I can remember even prior to that when we were living in uh, Michigan, and there was a story that one of the uh, members of our church that we were a part of shared about how one evening they were on the way home in a bad snowstorm and how their car broke down and how a truck drove up and they got into this car and this gentleman drove them home. And when they got home and they got to their front step and they turned around to thank the man who had driven them and the car wasn't even there. He wasn't there. They said that there weren't even any tracks in the snow. I can't say that I have ever seen an angel, though certainly I could have been uh, unaware, right, of angels. I don't know about you. Perhaps you have had your own experiences or you have heard experiences of others where they have encountered angels. Now, I'm going to say, as we're talking about these things together today, that even though our culture is becoming less and less focused, uh, less and less Christian, we might say, what we do find is there is an increasing interest in angels. All you have to do is turn on the TV and you will see all kinds of examples of angels. We seem to live in a culture that is obsessed with angels. We talk about them on Valentine's Day. We have statues that we put in our lawns, and we see it all around us. 
As a kid growing up, I can remember watching, on occasion, Highway to Heaven, right? Perhaps one of the more simple explanations, I suppose. Of course, all you have to do is uh, Google it. I Googled it this week, and the sheer number of shows that are about angels are astounding. Now, we certainly may remember Touched by an Angel. That was a program I never got into or never watched, right? But there are others, right? How about a good or the good place? How about a show like Lucifer? I've never watched that one. Uh, to uh, things like City of Angels. But let's be honest, it's not just uh, TV. We see it in films, right? From goofy films like Angels in the Outfield to even films that are the classics. Films like It's a Wonderful Life. They remain staples in our thoughts and in our conversations. And sadly, what we know about angels probably comes more from our culture and what we hear them talk about angels than in Scripture itself. How many times and how many of us have we heard people say that when you're at a funeral, that, oh, when you die, you become an angel? I can't tell you how many funeral services that I've been a part of where somebody will get up and say, well, now so-and-so is an angel and they've earned their wings. And every time I hear it inside, I want to wince a little bit because that's not what scripture says. But where do we get things like this from? Well, that movie that I referenced just a moment ago, a movie like It's a Wonderful Life, right? You see this perfectly portrayed in a character like Clarence who dies and, I don't know, doesn't have enough goody points in order to get into heaven. And so he's sent back down and he helps out George Bailey, right? And he helps George Bailey through the financial troubles. He's going to be able to earn his wings. And so you get to the end of the movie and the family is there. They're gathered around the Christmas tree. You hear the bell ring. And what does Zuzu say? Well, she says, teacher says, every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings, right? And uh, George looks up at heaven and goes, boy, Clarence, right? Now, here's the thing. That is an incredibly powerful movie. It's a good movie. A lot of people, you know, it's, you, you shed a tear or a dozen when you're watching it. But the truth is, it's terrible theology about angels. But this is a lot of times what people believe. By the way, other people have a tendency to believe that angels are these cute, chubby little babies, right, that fly around on wings, that sit on clouds, that shoot people, right, with their arrows. Now, where do we get that from? In Greek mythology, Cupid, one of the gods who will what? Kind of fling his arrow at those that he wants to fall in love. But here's the truth. In the Bible, angels are mostly pictured as everyday, ordinary people. Sometimes they are dressed in robes of gleaming white. It is very apparent who these angels are. Other times, people are attending to angels unaware. They're dressed in ordinary clothing, and people don't even know that they're angels. By the way, we see this in Genesis chapter 18. When they appear before Abraham, he encounters these strangers. He doesn't realize who they are until later. Even in Judges chapter 13, an angel appears to Manoah, and he's the father-to-be of Samson. And they think that this guy is just a man. 
And so we see this happening over and over again in Scripture. Now, when we think about angels with wings, then we're talking about cherubim and seraphim. Seraphim listed in Isaiah chapter 6. We hear about cherubim in Ezekiel 10. They're the only ones that are listed as actually having wings. The seraphim with six wings, the cherubim with four wings. All of this is to say that angels are not chubby babies flying around or sitting on clouds. More often, angels are portrayed as mighty warriors carrying swords. Think about it. When angels are first mentioned in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve have sinned, what is placed at the garden? The cherubim with swords of fire to protect the garden. We think about it in other times when in Joshua chapter 5 is the people of Israel are about to enter into the promised land, right? Standing outside the city of Jericho and what happens? But there is an angel, a mighty warrior with a sword. And basically Joshua asks, hey, whose side are you on? The angel is like, neither. But I am here as a part of the army of God. And so it's basically, you better watch out because of what we're going to do. What angels are, are God's messengers. And they are used to attend to the people of God. See, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and tells her that she is going to give birth to Jesus Angels announce that to the shepherds that Jesus has been born. It was angels who attended to Jesus after he had been tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. It was angels that gathered there at the ascension as Jesus was rising up into heaven. They said, hey, guess what? Jesus is coming back in the same way that you see him going up. All of this is to say that when we look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 to 14, that Jesus is far superior to all the angels. And only Jesus is worthy of our worship. Now, I get it. Most of us here this morning are going to say, look, Pastor Aaron, I don't have a problem with worshiping angels. So I don't know what in this message is going to apply to me. And it's true. On its face, and what we're going to read together today, you may think, well, I don't really get what this is saying to me. But here's what we need to know. When we look at the world that is all around us, we see the veneration of angels actually remains very high within our culture. In fact, 75% of Americans believe in angels, which is fine. But what we see happening is people put more trust in what they would say, that's my guardian angel, than putting their trust in Jesus Christ. You know, we see people praying to angels as if they are mediators in some way. We see people focusing on angelic hierarchies in some way. And we see people believing that their loved ones return to them as angels and are speaking to them. And then I want you to add in the fact that more people around the world actually believe in angels than they do in Jesus Christ. 
I mean, almost every culture has angelic beings that they believe speak to them. And all you have to do, by the way, is look at two religions, right? Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus Christ is the highest form of an angel. And we see around the world people giving angelic authority to their lives. So we may not feel like, oh, we have a problem with angelic worship, but we have to be careful. And the reason we have to be careful is all you have to do is go to the book of Revelation. And there, John, after receiving these incredible visions, what does he do? He falls down and worships at the feet of an angel. And the angel says, don't do it. You know, worship Jesus Christ. I am here to worship him. You are here to worship him. I am just a messenger. So I want you to think that if an apostle can fall at the feet of an angel and worship, who's to say that we too might not fall into this idea that we come and at some point may worship angels? And so with that in mind, I think it's good for us to be able to study together Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to be looking together at verses 5 to 14, talking about how Jesus Christ is superior to the angels. Now, what I want to do is I actually want to pick up at the fourth verse. We read the fourth verse last week, but verses 5 to 14 really are an exposition of what is said in verse 4 and really in verses 1 to 3 as well. So let's hear now the reading of God's word. It says, so he, and we're talking about Jesus here, became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, uh-oh, wait. I have to slow. Uh, and again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. But he also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, and like a garment they will be changed. But you will remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? And may God bless the reading of his word to our hearts and lives today. Now, 
For those of you who are following along in your Bibles, instead of reading along on the screen, one of the things that you notice is where I just got screwed up is there's a lot of indentation. And there's a lot of things there that you're like, okay, what in the world is going on here? We see a lot of rhetorical language uh, where there's like God is asking this rhetorical question. He's speaking to the angels and he's asking them questions. He's talking about Jesus and asking what's the difference between these two. Well, here's what you need to understand is that the Old Testament, right, the, the sermon writer for Hebrews is referencing the Old Testament on seven different occasions. These are what you might call proof texts. And so he's saying, look, this is what I'm saying about Jesus as he's being compared to angels. And here are seven different things that I'm laying before you that come directly from the Old Testament. Now, in your bulletin, I certainly could have given you seven fill-in-the-blanks, but I thought, no, let's not do that. That'll take up too much room. Instead, what we're going to be simply doing today is talking about the seven reasons why Jesus Christ is greater than angels. So we're going to be just going through this. We're kind of going to be flying through these seven different reasons, and we're going to go back to these Old Testament passages over and over again. Now, the first reason why Jesus is superior to angels is because Jesus is God's son. He's God's son. The first part of verse 5 is a reference that comes from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, where it says this, You are my son, today I have become your father. Psalm 2 is what is considered a messianic psalm. And it is a quote to show that Jesus is the son of God. That Jesus has a special relationship with the father. Jesus is not just a teacher. Jesus is not just a prophet. Jesus is God's own son. John Calvin, one of the great reformers, said this about this verse. Here Christ is declared to be the only begotten son of God. Not in the sense in which believers are the sons of God, but in a unique and incommunicable sense. Because he is the son of God by nature and not by adoption or grace. Now, what Calvin may be saying here sounds a bit like a mouthful. But what he is expressing is that Jesus is not a human being who was adopted by God like you and I are. What he is saying is that Jesus is is God by nature. This is a profound mystery, and we were talking about this last week, the mystery of Christ's divine and human nature being together in one person. If you happen to read the, uh, the newsletter article that went out this week, one of the things that you saw, I shared a quote from C.S. Lewis. It was so good, I thought, boy, for those of you who aren't reading your weekly update, we're going to use it again this morning. And this comes from C.S. Lewis's work, Mere Christianity. He talks a lot about the word beget. Now, the word beget is not a word that we use often in the English language outside of church circles. But listen to what he says. He says, to beget is to become the father of. To create is to make. And the difference is this. When you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man 
begets human babies. A beaver begets little beavers. And a bird begets eggs, which turn into little birds. But when you make, you make something of a different kind of yourself. A bird makes a nest. A beaver builds a dam. A man makes a wireless set. Or he may make something more like himself than a wireless set, say, a statue. If he is clever enough carver, he may make a statue which is very like a man indeed. But of course, it is not a real man. It only looks like one. It cannot breathe or think. It is not alive. Now, that is the first thing to get clear. What God begets is God, just as what man begets is man. And the point that these authors are trying to make, the point that the writer of Hebrews is trying to make, is that Jesus is the begotten Son of God. Angels were created. Human beings, we are created. But Jesus has always existed as a member of the triune God. Second, the second reason why Jesus is greater than the angels is because Jesus is the promised son. He's the promised son. Now, this second reference comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. And it says, I will be his father and he will be my son. Now, the context of 2 Samuel 7 is when David has finally come to rest from warring with his enemies, and he wants to build a temple for God. But God comes to him through the prophet Nathan and says this. You won't find it on the screen behind me. The Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. In other words, the blessing that God has given to Abraham, that God has given to Isaac, that continues on through David and even through his son Solomon and through this Davidic line of kings through Israel and through Judah are now being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Remember, when the angel appears to Mary in Luke chapter 1, the angel says this, that he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him a throne over his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. No angel has ever been described in this way. Only Jesus fits this description. Third, Jesus is the worshipped son. He's the worshipped son. The third reference as to why Jesus is better than the angels comes from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. It says, let all God's angels worship him. Now here's what's interesting is if you turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 32, you are going to find a verse that sounds very different from the one that we see in Hebrews. And the reason for that is 
because in this case, the writer of Hebrews is using the Septuagint. And the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Jewish prophecies, the Jewish texts. And so here what you see is that the word Elohim can be translated God, capital G, but can also be translated lowercase God. And if it's translated lowercase g, it can mean angels. And all of that is to say that angels worship Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn son. He is the begotten son of God. The false assumption when we use the word firstborn is to think that Jesus might be the firstborn and he was created. But what we know is he was the firstborn son of Mary, the firstborn that receives all of the inheritance of the father. In fact, what we remember last week, we said that Jesus is the heir of all things. What this means is that Jesus alone is worthy of our worship. Now, in these first three, they are rhetorical questions. They serve to highlight that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's not just another prophet, he's not just another teacher, that he is God and as such deserves our worship and our adoration. So that brings us to the fourth reason why Jesus is better than angels. Because angels are servants of God. Angels are servants. In verse 7 and 14, we are reminded that angels are ministering spirits. The first reference comes from Psalm 104, verse 4. That's what we see in verse 7. We're set where we're told that the Lord makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. Again, if you go back, by the way, to that psalm, you will notice it's a little bit different. And again, it's because he's drawing from the Septuagint. Now, the reason why this is important is because when it's talking about angels and referring to them as the wind, what it's saying is that the wind blows where God tells it to go. That the wind is fleeting. That fire is can only burn so long as there is something there that is allowing a flame to be there. It, again, is referring to the fact that flames are fleeting. They're here and they're gone. And what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say is, look, angels are like the wind. They're fleeting. They're wherever God tells them to go, they go. But Jesus is eternal. He doesn't just fleet here and there. Jesus is eternal. And so angels are not worthy of our worship because they are created creatures. And verse 14 really drives this point home, that angels are ministering spirits who minister to Jesus. Angels minister to us. This is the purpose of angels. Notice fifth, Jesus is the ruling son. He's the ruling son. The fifth reference is from Psalm 45, verses 6 to 7. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. 
See, similar to what we were talking about together last week, Jesus is the promised son of David who is going to reign supreme. What's really cool about this psalm is that it is actually a wedding psalm that was used at the wedding of a king. Now, originally it was used to refer to a specific event, but now it is being used to refer to the church as being the bride of Christ and Christ being the bridegroom. And as such, in this relationship, we are going to praise the Lord Jesus Christ for eternity. Only Jesus is the Davidic Messiah, the anointed one. Only he can fit this description. Only Jesus is establishing an eternal kingdom that will never end. It is only Jesus who rules with a righteous scepter. No angel can be referred to in this way. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 9, 7, it says, Of the greatness of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Jesus is God's ruling son. The sixth reason that Jesus is greater than angels is because Jesus is the eternal son. Verses 10 to 12 are a reference to Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27. In the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them and they will be discarded. But you remain the same and your years will never end. See, what this psalm is doing is speaking of the unchangeable, eternal nature of the Son of God. The Son of God has always existed, and He will always exist. His kingdom will have no end because Jesus' life has no end. The Lord is eternal, and His faithfulness will outlast all the world. And when you look at the context of Psalm 102, you see how really fitting this is. Psalm 2 is actually a psalm of lament, of crying out, of saying, God, where are you? But in that psalm, it also contains promise, and it contains hope, saying, God, I know that as I cry out, you, this eternal God, are going to come to my aid. God, you will not leave me alone. You will not abandon me. Why can we trust in this Jesus? Because he is eternal. And then notice, seventh and last, Jesus is the divine son. He's the divine son. The final reference comes for that Jesus is better than angels from Psalm 110, verse 1. Again, it's another messianic psalm that the writer of Hebrews is going to come back to later. We're going to see this come back in Hebrews later on. And it says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. See, as glorious and as splendid as angels are, God has never said this 
to any angel. God says only to Jesus, come and sit at my right hand. Last week, we were talking about what does it mean to sit at the right hand of someone, right? The right hand. Traditionally, people who are right-handed, it's the, it's the, the arm of strength. Right? It's that arm of power. In ancient times, to sit at a king's right hand symbolized authority. It was a place of blessing. It was a place of favor. And this is the position where Jesus Christ sits. And by the way, all the New Testament points to this. You, you, look, at, uh, you look at Colossians chapter 3, 1. What does Paul say? Since then, you have been raised with Christ... Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated, where? At the right hand of God. Peter makes mention of it in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 21 to 22. He says, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is what? At the right, God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. See, being at the right hand of God means that Jesus is exalted, that Jesus reigns supreme, and that he has authority over heaven and earth. Now, I know that similar to last week, you're like, wow, this is, this is like just so much theology that's coming at me all at once. And again, we're probably left with this idea of, okay, what does this passage, though, have to do with me? What, what do I take away from this passage? You know, oftentimes as pastors, when we look at a passage, we might look for the verbs, right? The action words, the commands. Like, okay, when I'm reading this text, what does it say we're supposed to do? Now, here's what's interesting. You look at this text and you're like, I don't know. It doesn't say, it doesn't say what am I supposed to do, right? So then we might look at what's the example. And if you look at the example that is set here, what is the example of the angels? The example of the angels is to worship and to serve. And I think what that tells us is when we understand the glory of Jesus Christ, the posture of our hearts then is to be one of worship. Where we say then, Lord Jesus, you alone are worthy of the worship that I bring. And until that great and glorious day when Jesus Christ returns, we worship him and then we serve. We seek to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. We seek to tell others about the hope that we can have in Jesus Christ. I really believe that the more you and I understand the majesty of who Jesus is, it will lead us to greater heights and depths in our worship. And then it leads our hearts to say, Lord, how can I serve? By the way, I also believe that this is a passage that gives us confidence in our salvation. Why? Well, guess what? Because Jesus is who he says he is. And more than that, Jesus is who God says he is. 
and Jesus is who God says he is because God has given us his word. And over and over again, we see his word confirming that yes, Jesus alone is worthy of our worship. And when we understand that, that confidence that we have, again, it should lead us to greater worship and to greater service. But I do think it is good for us to keep in mind this truth, that angels are ministering spirits, and that there are angels that minister to us. Angels are not to be worshipped, but it is good to know that they can comfort us and protect us, but that in every case, they are working on behalf of Jesus Christ. They are at the service of Jesus Christ. The point is, we should not make angels more than they are. But we should not make angels less than they are. And when we have that understanding and that knowledge, it leads us to better worship. In fact, when John Calvin penned his institutes, uh, he opened it. It's a famous line, a famous quote. He said this, Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, comes, it consists in two parts. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. I really believe that the more knowledge that we have of God and the better understanding we have of ourselves, the more it is going to lead to authentic worship of the Lord Jesus Christ and hearts that desire to serve him in this community and in our world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are king. You are the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We recognize that there is no one like you. Lord, there is no one who has ever existed before you that's like you. No one will ever exist like you that is after you. But Jesus, you are eternal, that you are unchangeable, that you are unknowing, that you are seated at the right hand of God, that you are the divine son, that you are the worshiped son. Lord, over and over again, through this Hebrews chapter 1, we see, Lord, how you are greater. And Lord, we would, we would pray that as a people, we're, we're placing you in that authoritative place in our lives. That to say you are greater. That you're the greatest thing in my life. More than the things of this world. More than angels. And Lord, than anything. That we would say, Lord Jesus, you are to be worshipped and you are to be praised. God, we pray that as we continue to study together this book the sermon of the Hebrews, that it is just going to cause us to greater heights of worship, to greater depths of worship, and Lord, to greater service as we seek, Lord, to be faithful as you have been so faithful to us over and over again. God, truly, Jesus is greater, and we pray that we may worship him in this place and in our hearts and in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were encouraged by this message, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy your podcast listening. And check out our other discussions and messages. 
To learn more about Warsaw Evangelical Presbyterian Church's worship services, ministries, and events, visit us online at warsawpresby.org or follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you again for joining us and have a blessed day.